Morning. Uh, my name is David Sorn. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, happy winter to you, I, I guess. I hope you make a snowman uh, later. Hey, how many of you have dreamed, have wanted ever to be famous or powerful or seen as great? You know, I think if you think about that question, a lot of us, especially now as adults, we sort of excuse ourselves from that sort of question, even though that's exactly what we wanted as kids, right? You wanted to be a famous athlete or a singer or actor. For me, uh, I constantly pretended that I was a famous athlete hitting the game-winning shot of Game 7 of the NBA Finals in my driveway. Uh, The problem was I actually had to pretend it like seven times because it kept missing every time. (laughs) You can't win them all, right? And still today, actually, when they poll teens and they ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? One of the latest polls says, number one, this is probably a a product of our times, number one was doctor, actually, uh, followed very closely by number two, which is social media influencer, okay? (laughs) But what happens is once you hit your 20s, you know, you're probably, you realize that you're probably not going to be famous, right? And we let our celebrity goals sort of fall by the wayside, but Do you still, even at that age or into your 30s and 40s and even older, do you still want to be seen as great or as important? For some of you, that's an obvious yes. You're like, yeah, I do want that at work. I crave that. I maybe crave that from my peers or even my parents still. For others of us, this desire to be great or important is a bit more subliminal, but you can see it if you look hard. You may not outwardly crave it, but you see it in like on social media, for example, and how you do actually crave likes or hearts, for instance. Or maybe you can see it in the fact that a lot of us are just really sensitive to criticism. Well, why are we really sensitive? It's because, well, we want to be seen as important or great or even right. Now, a desire to be great isn't necessarily bad. It can be good if your core motivation is to be great for the glory of God. But the problem is nowadays in America, a lot of us want to be great for the glory of ourselves, right? And Jesus is going to correct that sort of thinking today as we continue uh, studying the Bible in the book of Luke. So everybody grab a Bible. Let's take a look at what it says. There's a Bible under uh, each chair in front of you. We're going to be on page 720. If you don't have a Bible, you've never really studied the Bible uh, yourself, go ahead and take this one with you today. Uh, You can just grab it. Start reading through the book of Luke. Uh, Start at the beginning. I think you'll find it fascinating. Uh, Luke is one of four books in the Bible about the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, We've been going through this book for a long time. Uh, We are in chapter 22 where uh, we're kind of in the last week of Jesus' life. It's a Thursday night. He's literally going to be crucified in the morning. And last week we talked about he, how he instituted the Last Supper at this meal in the upper room. And where we are today is they're sort of continuing in conversation uh, after the Last Supper. So let's go uh, chapter 22, and then I want you to look for verse 21. That's kind of the small number 21, and that's where we're going to continue on reading. Here's what it says. So Jesus is talking here. He says, but the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man, that's like a title Jesus uses for himself, so he's talking about himself. The son of man will go as it's been decreed, meaning he's going to die. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Uh, In Matthew, which is another one of the four books about Jesus, we get a little bit more information about how they respond. I'll just throw it on the screen for you quick. Matthew says the disciples says this about the disciples. They were very sad, and they began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And they begin to get defensive. And what you're going to see as we keep reading here in a little bit is they not only get incredibly defensive, but incredibly 
prideful because they don't think it's possible that they could do such a thing. But in fact, what we're going to read today, and really what you see throughout all of Scripture, is that as Christians, we are, in a sense, required. What God wants of us is to do a reversal of our thinking and of our doing. See, as Christians, we are not to think highly of ourselves because, in truth, we are actually capable of significant sin. And this chapter in the Bible is proof of it. We are thoroughly sinful. And without the continual help and transformation of God, we are capable of any sin, no matter how depraved it is. Much of this chapter is going to be like about this as we talk about the betrayal of Judas, as we have been. And eventually here in the next few weeks, we're going to move into the uh, denial of Jesus by Peter, another one of the disciples. See, one of the reasons as Christians that we're called to not quickly judge people is because so often when we judge people, our attitudes are filled with sort of this baseline thought that goes something like this, oh, I would never do that. So you look at someone and they say, she lost her job again. I would never lose my job because I work hard and I just wouldn't do that. Or I would never leave my family. How could you do that? Would just be faithful. Just be serious about it. I would never hurt someone like that. We, we judge like this all the time. We say, I would never. Oh, but you could. And see, that's actually the truth that the Bible teaches. Left to our own devices, left to our own sinful nature, without God, we could deny Jesus like Peter or betray him like Judas. Okay, let's just think about this. So, out of all of human history, there were only 12 people ever that got to walk face-to-face with Jesus for three years. Only 12 people in all of human history. Think about those 12 people. Out of the 12, one denied him and one betrayed him. And so never say in your life, oh, I would never do that. I think we have no idea what we would do sometimes when the pressure is on. And you cannot underestimate the pull of sin on your life. And if you underestimate it, we live like most of us do in pride and not in Christian humility. So if you're actually going to thrive in your faith, in your Christian walk, we have to begin reversing the way that we think. It's got to look really different than our culture. Because our culture says something like, I can do anything I set my mind to, but the Christian thought is a humble thought. It's more like, without Christ, I'll end up doing everything I never wanted to. This is why, okay, you think of Paul. Paul's a man who wrote, the Apostle Paul, much of the New Testament. A lot of people call Paul the greatest Christian of all time. You know what Paul called himself? He called himself the chief of sinners. Why? Because he was deeply aware of the depth of his own sin. Or I think of my hero, uh, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon often said things like this. He said, uh, here's a quote from him. Some time ago, a man said a very unkind and untrue thing of me. And I felt quite pleased because I thought that if he had known me better, he might have said something worse. (laughs) Now, can we go back to the beginning of that quote for a second? I I think this is how a lot of people would... I just deal with this in American culture today, we would say, some time ago, a man said a very unkind and untrue thing of me, and so I cut them out of my life as toxic. That's what we do, right? But here's the thing. The Christian 
doesn't need to protect their self-esteem at all costs. The Christ follower is to be the humblest of creatures. The one that knows that if they got the chance and life got out of control and pressure was on, they may even deny Christ. I'm reading a book right now about uh, Christians during uh, the tenure of, communist, of communism in Romania. And the communists would literally come to many of the churches and they would say, you can decide right now, you can go to prison the rest of your life, or you can deny Christ and join the communist party. And literally, churches full of people, sometimes 75% of church members would go, I'm going to deny Christ. That's unbelievable. But when the pressure's on, where will our sin take us? See, it's actually when you understand, you don't underestimate, you understand your propensity, your nature, your natural propensity towards sin, that understanding actually allows you to thrive spiritually. You know why? It's because when you understand it, you know I have to be, if I'm really going to grow into a mature Christian, I have to be so dependent on God. But when you don't understand that, you think, I'm actually a pretty decent person. You're not really going to rely on God that much. You're just going to rely on yourself, and thus you're not actually going to grow spiritually. See, and it's this sort of reversal from pride to humility that needs to happen, not just in our thinking, but it actually needs to happen indeed in our actions. And that's where we're going to get to in the next part of the passage. So let's keep reading now. Uh, verse 24. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Okay, let's pause there for a second. You know that argument that you have like, with your best friend, and it's kind of like a running argument you keep having, or maybe with your spouse? Like in our house, uh, that argument is, should you have the lights on in the middle of the day? Uh, which I think we all know the answer to that. Uh, th it's my wife in this service. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is recorded. Okay, this argument that they keep having, the disciples keep, uh, talk to me in the lobby if you want to know the real answer to that. This, this argument they keep having is, fascinatingly, which one of us is the greatest? They have it multiple times throughout the Gospels. Which one of us is the greatest? What's crazy is, just think of the context. Jesus just said guys, tomorrow I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to pour my life out for you. And then it says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And it's like, what meal are you guys at right now? How is this possibly an argument happening? Now, really, it's an argument that is stemming out of the fact that Jesus just said, one of you is going to betray me. And as they're going around the table saying, surely you don't mean me, they begin in all likelihood to probably justify themselves, right? And you can sort of imagine them going around and Matthew's going, guys, this couldn't be me. You remember when Jesus sent us out with the 72? You should have seen some of the miracles I was doing. I mean, I would never do that. And Peter's bragging about what he saw at the transfiguration. He's like, you guys haven't seen Moses and Elijah. I've seen this. It couldn't be me, right? And Thaddeus, the disciple, is bragging about his approval rating being so high because no one actually even remembers he's a disciple, right? And Jesus is saying, guys, I'm going to die in the morning. And you're arguing about which one of you is the greatest. See, there's no end to the human propensity towards pride. 
and defensiveness. And yet Jesus, because he is not self-absorbed like the rest of us, he doesn't overreact. I mean, if if that's me and I'm in the room, I'm like, seriously, everybody leave right now, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He calmly corrects them. He reminds them. This is verse 25 now, if you're still looking at it. He says, the people of this world, they love to have power over other people. Why do we love it? Why do we love that sort of power? It's because it builds up our self-esteem, we think, or our self-worth. It sort of falsely reassures us that we are important. Uh, Jesus says the ones who rule over others sometimes call themselves benefactors. We don't use that word a whole lot anymore, but in Greco-Roman society in which they lived, that was a really important word. A benefactor was someone who was kind of higher up on the socioeconomic ladder, and they would help out people who were poor with finances, but they weren't doing it just out of the goodness of their heart. If you were helped out financially by a benefactor, then at some point you owed them, and they would ask for a political favor or a social favor or support or something. You owed them. They were your benefactor, and that's how the world works. That's really not all that different today, but look at the start of verse 26 now. I'll put it on the screen. Jesus says, but you, so this is for us, his followers, you are not to be like that. That's not us. We don't look like the world. Instead, So here's what we're supposed to be like. The greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. So the true follower of Christ is humble all the way through. They are humble in thought and what they think of themselves, and they're humble indeed. We serve not because we're someone special or we earned our way in the corporate world or in our family and what we did over the years. We just serve because we're loved by God. And we serve because... That's what he did, and we want to be like him. What's really interesting about just thinking about this meal in the upper room and what's happening is kind of comparing what's happening in the different gospels, the four stories about Jesus. So if you go over to the gospel of John, which is another one of the four books, John actually spends five chapters on what happens in the upper room that Thursday night all the way from chapter 13 to 17. And in chapter 13 of John, that's where we see that it's this very evening on that Thursday night in the upper room that Jesus gets down on his knees and washes the feet of the disciples. So think about this. The disciples are spending the evening arguing about who is the greatest, while the one who actually is the greatest gets down on his knees and washes their feet. And listen, if there is anyone who has ever walked on this planet that could have demanded that other people serve him, just like the, the kings and the presidents of the earth, right? We say, oh, I'm really important. You're going to serve me. You're going to drive me around. If there's anyone who ever could have demanded it, it was the Son of God. And yet he lives this incredibly simple, humble lifestyle serving God and serving other people. Is that you? Do you look like, we say we want to be like Christ. Do you look like Christ? In humility and serving other people. I think it's why serving other people honestly should be one of the main hallmarks of what it is to be a Christian. I think a Christian who doesn't serve is kind of like a walking contradiction. Because to be a Christian means to be like Christ. We can't be like Christ if we don't serve. Jesus is serving the night before he's going to die. He's still serving. But it's just so different than how most of us think. We're always thinking about ourselves and why other people should serve us. Just the other day, 
one of my kids had a birthday, and we had birthday cake, and it was, we finished, and we were putting away our, our dishes, and I, I looked at him, and I said, hey, uh, buddy, you need to put away your dishes, and he said, no, it's my birthday, and I said, I'm not sure I follow, uh, <laughs> But we do this all the time, right? We invent ways on why we're special and why we're different and why we don't need to serve. But that's not who Christ was. Imitate Christ. How else can you serve in your life? What could you do even this week in your home to just serve other people? Not to get paid back? He said not to do that. Just to serve them because you want to look like Christ. What could you do? What could you do at work? What you could do here? What could you do here? I mean, if you're, if you're coming here and you're not serving yet on a Sunday morning, what I would say to you is, I know so many of you are brand new within like the last month or two, but my hope for you is that you wouldn't just come here week after week over the next year and just come and consume and take something for yourself. Come and serve like Christ. There's so many opportunities to do that. Like in, in Renovation Kids, I know there's a need there. Just greeting someone with a friendly smile on the way in or helping them find a place to park or on our crew team, the people who put out new Bibles after people take them or communion. There's ways that you can come and you can look like Christ when you're here. This is what we do as Christ followers because life is not about our fame. The other day, I had to call a local pastor on the phone and ask him something. And I introduced myself, I introduced our church, but I had this just bad moment of pride where I just thought, he's going to know who I am. He's going to know about our church, renovation church. Right? I'm sure that he's seen the building, right? And I, don't judge me. <laughs> I'm, I'm the, I just heard you in your head. I'm the chief of sinners, okay? All right. So guess what? He had no idea who I was. <laughs> Two days later, this is just the Lord. The Lord works like this sometimes in your life, and you need to listen when it happens. Two days later, I'm speaking at an event. And the guy whose job it was to introduce me, he comes over to me again. He's like, can you just say your name for me again? I don't remember. Was it David Scorn? Like, yeah, my last name is Scorn. What in the, no, it's not. But inside, what do we do? We, I know you would have done the same thing. You're like, you don't know me, right? We do this. And I had to have a really embarrassingly long talk with the Lord on the drive home that night. Just to say, God, I, this is, I, I am serving and it is not about me. If I spend the next 40 years of my life serving you and no one ever knows who I am and no one ever knows about this place or Renovation Church and there are no books written or anything, it doesn't matter because I'm not serving so I can be known. I'm serving to make you known. That is the attitude of the Christian. We need to be willing to serve with a low opinion of ourselves. Because if anyone ever could have said, do you know who I am? Anybody else in the room created a planet? It's Jesus, but he doesn't ever do that. He just serves. And, and part of the reason that we can do that is we can change our thinking and our doing is just looking out to the timeline that's coming. And that's what Jesus hints at in the last three verses of our section for today. So look at 28 through 30. He says to his disciples, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so the disciples are going to continue to mess up. Jesus knows their future, and he knows, though, also that the Holy Spirit in, you know, 
uh, the coming months here, is going to come down and empower these disciples. And when God comes into their life like that, they're actually going to become incredibly great men, great leaders. Where verse 28 says, they will stand by him. And they did, even to their death. 11 out of the 12 disciples were martyred for their faith. And Jesus reminds them, we actually saw this twice last week, if you were here, he reminds them again of the great wedding supper of the Lamb, that incredible feast that every Christian will participate, maybe for a long time, in eternity someday, where we would dine with Jesus. And why does he point to that? He points to that because in those days, there will be a time for us to sit down and be served, and to feast, and to sit back. But Christians, our time, our time to sit at the table comes later. Right now, our time is to serve. Right now, our time is to reach people for Christ and to serve and to show people that God absolutely loves them. And I think this passage just speaks so deeply of just the beauty of the humility and love of Jesus Christ. It actually reminds me, there's another time, one of the other times that the disciples had this exact same argument about which one of them was the greatest, is in Mark chapter 10. And in that part of the Bible, Jesus responds by saying this. I'm going to read this to you. Mark 10 verse 44 says, And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, remember that's Jesus, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, when you really love somebody, you serve them. A good example of this is um, a mother with a sick child, a really sick child. She will do anything. She'll get them water, clean up their mess, make them special food, whatever it takes. She serves them because she so deeply loves them. And Jesus comes to earth to serve you because he deeply loves you. Even though we are sick in our sins, all sorts of messes and mistakes, he comes for us, and do you see what it says? This is so fascinating. It says, he gives his life as a ransom for many. What that means is we are trapped in our sins, the mistakes of our lives. And our sins, because God is just, deserve punishment. Quite frankly, what we deserved was hell. But Jesus dies on the cross as a ransom payment. And his death is, in a sense, purchasing our freedom from the sins that we are trapped within. And the teaching of the Bible is, that's not just given to everyone, but your belief in him and believing personally, truly from your heart that he died for you, turning your life over to him, that is what cashes in that ransom payment and sets you free and forgives you. But that's how much God loves you. I mean, you may have come in here this morning, I have no idea what your week was like or what your last month was like, and you may just feel like a mess. And you're looking around at all these other people and you're like, they all got their lives together. A quick note, they don't, right? It's life is messy. And you feel like, oh, I'm a mess, and here I am. i got to get my life together and make sure I look nice coming to church. Jesus sees you in your mess. And the servant heart of Jesus comes to die in your place and offer you this ransom payment that will set you free. And what sets you free 
is your belief in him. That's pretty amazing, really. And I'm so thankful that's what it is because I'm never going to be good enough and the chief of sinners. But that's the opportunity that sits in front of you now. And maybe it's an opportunity you've just been thinking about lately. And have you ever made that decision to say, yeah, I do believe I am giving my, I'm turning my life over to you. I believe you died for me. Because that's a decision that people make here almost every week and radically changes their life. Have you made that decision? And if you haven't, I want to give you an opportunity to even do it this morning. So let's just have everybody just close their eyes just, just for a minute. If you never made this decision before and you want to let Jesus Christ pay your ransom, set you free, forgive you from sin, to invite him into your life as a leader, as savior, you can do that today. That's why he died on the cross, to save you from your sins. Do you need that? Have you accepted truly Jesus Christ into your life as your leader? And if you need to do that, what I'm going to ask you to do in just a minute, as a way to kind of mark this moment in your life, to tell God, I want you to just quietly stand up where you're at. No one's going to be looking at you. It's kind of why I had people close their eyes. But if you're here and you're thinking, I need to be forgiven this morning, I can't make it on my own. I need to turn my life over to him. What I want you to do is trust God who created you. And I want you to just quietly stand up wherever you're at right now. Go ahead if that's you. I'll give you 10 seconds or so. Anyone here where God has just been pounding on the door of your life? And let me forgive you. I come to you in love. I've seen your mess. And I love you. I want you to let me lead your life. Anyone here that needs to make that decision to be forgiven? If it's you, would you just stand up where you're at? All right. Uh, you can open your eyes. I don't see anyone in this particular service today. But I think... I just, you know, you look through this passage and you think about the gospel. And what's so great is you, we don't worship a God that comes and just demands that we follow him. He comes as a servant in love. And that's what makes me want to follow him. That I can be the chief of sinners, and yet still he loves me. So we want to pray and, and praise him for that. Let's do that. Lord, thank you that we are kind of messy and yet you die for us. We are just blown away by that some days. God, may we never tire of, being, of hearing that message. God, humble us in our thoughts. It's so easy to think that we are something special. We are not. You treasure us, but not because of what we've done, God, but just because you love us. And help us just think rightly and act rightly because of your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.